What's going on everybody? Welcome back to the bus driver experience. Super happy to have you guys all here. And if you are new to the show, but also if you've been here before and you haven't subscribed head, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Welcome to the bus driver experience. We are tackling all these different new zany wacky actually no, they're actually not that new or out there. It's new and fascinating. It's fascinating things that people are doing in this world. Great ways that people are filling their human experience. And I'm talking with these guys and gals, and I'm going out and living these unique experiences with them. So if that's something that interests you, go ahead, get on the bus, come join this incredible experience. Go check out our YouTube channel where we take a little bit more in-depth look at the lives of these incredible individuals. And welcome aboard. But before I keep rambling and jumping back and forth on all these different things because I sound like a mess, we're going to get into today's guest. We have Andrew Freund. Andrew, first of all, we shared a, had a great, great, great conversation with the bus driver experience. Andrew is the founder of USA Sumo, which is a sumo federation located out here in California. And it, they also host the largest sumo tournament outside of Japan. They're getting about 5,000 plus people, and they just recently had their 19th tournament. Andrew and I go deep into sumo wrestling, the sport, the culture, the art form, and how a lot of these sumo wrestlers, who they are, what they do, how they train, as well as how they're filling in their time and their lives when they aren't doing sumo, what how they get into sumo itself, and then what they do in a life after sports. So... It was an incredible conversation. Andrew's a very cool dude. Make sure you go check out USA Sumo. And without further ado, let's get into the show. Andrew Florent, how you doing, man? Hey, good, Brandon. Thanks for coming out. Good to be here, yeah. Nice little studio you got here. Handshake to start here. Yeah, man, it's a new studio out mm-hmm. here in California. Really happy to be out here. I love, don't know why it took me so long to get here. But mm-hmm. once you get here, you realize, like, okay, I see what everybody's talking about now. Yeah. No one wants to leave. Everybody it, wants to get here, and so many people live here. Yeah, exactly. Well, once you kind of get established and you start doing some business or you have a network, it's hard to leave because it's hard to find the same opportunities elsewhere. When it comes to, let's say, what you're doing, you know, media, sports, entertainment, anything in, in you know, those fields and so, several others. Completely. I mean, yeah. I even think about like music and just how many shows or, um, yeah, just how many shows or performances or artists have to come and have to travel through, whether it's for business or they're going to be putting on a show anyway. So, I mean, think about when I go out to see a musical act, it's like, oh, that person's going to be here again and they're mm-hmm. going to be here. Just everybody comes through here. You're uh, originally from California? Uh, so I was, I was born in New York and I grew up in Maryland. Actually, well, this is a stupid joke. I can say it on a show like this. <laughs> so I can tell people this is literal. It's kind of stupid. I, I can't do the accents, but okay. I was born in Jamaica, man, and I grew up in Columbia. So I was born in Jamaica, New York. I grew up in Columbia, Maryland. Okay, that's stupid. That. All right, anyway, <laughs> no, but um, when I was in high school, we moved out uh, We moved out to uh, San Diego. So I spent my last couple years of high school in San Diego, then most of the rest of my life since then in, um, in L.A. In Jamaica, that's up near the border. Oh, no, 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 no. It's in Queens. It's in Queens. Yeah, Jamaica, in Queens. Queens. Okay, yeah, yeah, nice, yeah. nice, nice. So, I moved from Brooklyn uh, last, my last stop before I got to L.A. Gotcha. And New York, man, that's a different, different beast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You've got to be there just to work. Mm-hmm. No one cares about you. Everybody's just there to work, get the job done. Mm-hmm. But I just hated it. You could not, you almost had to pay to leave your apartment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like paying to go spend your time in other people's places. Because you didn't want to spend it with the person you were staying with mm-hmm. or living with. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, we, we got to get outside. But you have to pay for the pleasure mm-hmm. of leaving your apartment and going somewhere else. I'm over it. And I love it out here. And you've been running this USA Sumo Federation for like 20, 19, 20 years. So, you know, I started, um, I'll try to condense this, but um, I was working in Japan almost 30 years ago. And um, I was a very different person then. And... You know, didn't have any particular ambitions like this. But in the mid-90s when I was back here, I um, I saw a sumo exhibition, and I started a club just for fun. You know, I love doing sports. I love, you know, playing all the time. I know you're into basketball. I love to play basketball every weekend. And um, I started a sumo club at UCLA where I was teaching, and it kind of got bigger and bigger. And it's been about, <clears throat> 22, about 22 years now that I've been running sumo practices in L.A., and um, the you know in terms of the tournament, the the U.S. Sumo Open is is now the biggest annual sumo tournament in the world outside of Japan. 
and we did the first one back in 2001. I had no idea. At that time, I was just like, hey, why don't I put on a tournament? And, you know, I had no clue what I was getting into. And, uh, you know, after that, I thought, never again. It, it destroyed me, you know, energy-wise, financially. Everything was it was very tough. And then somehow we ended up keeping it going. And now it's 19 years as of uh, last month. So March of 2019 was the 19th annual. Now to go right back in, or right back to what you said about the biggest outside Japan. I mean, mm -hmm. what what's considered the biggest in Japan, and how many other U.S. Or, I mean, excuse me, sumo tournaments are there around the world that you guys makes you guys the biggest? Yeah, uh, very good question. So number one, in Japan, there's what's called Ozumo, which is pro sumo, and that only exists in Japan, and that's been around. I mean, sumo's ostensibly uh, in Japan for in some form or another for close to maybe two millennia. <clears throat> Um, but the pro sumo you see today is in a root in a slightly different form has been around for probably about 400 years and that's in an, almost an inconceivable scale in terms of the finances involved I mean it's an integral part of Japanese society so you're not going to compare to pro sumo in Japan mm -hmm. um, what they, are the differences between those I mean you're talking about I, I don't even know the difference between, yeah uh, what, would, what would be the main differences in those kinds of sumos okay so once you step into the ring and you start a match, there's virtually no difference, virtually. Okay. But pro sumo is not just a sport. It's not like you have a season and off season. It's a lifestyle. So it's like if you join the military, for example. So if you're, if you're let's say you're a 14-year-old kid in Japan, you decide, I want to go into pro sumo. Skip, you know, quit school, go into pro sumo. You're a pro sumo wrestler, and you are living with these group, a group of people in the same room, the same building, 24 hours a day, all year long for three or five or 10 or 15, 20 years until you retire. Old school apprenticeship style. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's bizarre. Americans could almost not conceive of it. You have a sports background. I don't think you would want to live in the same room with all the other guys in your basketball team year in and year out without a break. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 like a, it's like a military thing, but I think that's one of the things too that people miss when they leave sports. Yeah. It's, you're not with people, you know, on that scale or mm -hmm. level, but you know, you miss that camaraderie. You miss, you know, those times where those people are the only people that can understand and relate to you yeah. in tough situations or, you know, moments that tested you. Mm -hmm. It's a big thing missing. It's true, yeah. And so, like, Japan, Japanese culture, and especially in pro sumo, <clears throat> it's an extreme example of that. It's like, okay, you're in, you're in for good. There's no half halfway. You know, you're in. And, um, you know, outside of and, – and pro sumo has so many rules. So there's a pecking order. There's a hierarchy. Let's say there's roughly 700 pro sumo wrestlers at any given time, and they each know exactly their their position on the ranking chart. I mean, it's crazy in terms of all the little day-to-day -day things that it completely depends on where you're ranked in terms of are you, are you cooking the food and serving or are you the one being served, things like that. Um, but outside of pro sumo as an amateur sport, both in Japan but also now more and more in the rest of the world, uh, sumo is something you can do as a weekend warrior. You know, we have a lot of people now in L.A. who come out once a week to our practice. They train. Once in a while, there's a tournament, and they compete. Um, so as opposed to pro sumo, though, where they have six major tournaments each 15 days long. So it's 90 days of competition in a year. Wow. <laughs> On an amateur level, most people are maybe doing one or two or maybe five tournaments in a year. In terms of the scale of the tournaments, let's say in this country, you know, there's a few smaller tournaments here and there, maybe you know, 20 people show up to watch or 30 people show up to watch. Or if it's at an existing expo or an event, there might be thousands of people there and maybe a few hundred watch it. Um, U.S. Sumo Open, like I said, we, we just last month had uh, 5,000 people show up and watch it. So it's been, it hasn't done, you know, hasn't gotten that way overnight. It's been a labor of love. It's been a lot of steps to get there. But um, that's one thing that kind of makes it the, the, the biggest sumo tournament in the world, unless you actually go to pro sumo in Japan. What you said about the, um, the pecking order, in the sumo rankings, mm -hmm. seems that's very similar in a lot of things in Japanese culture. Mm -hmm. um, I know, like even like I saw from that documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, and mm -hmm. just like, okay, hey, listen, for seven years you could just end up making the rice mm -hmm. or coating it with vinegar, just depending on where you fall on that scale. That mm -hmm. scale, and in that uh, set of the hierarchy, whoever is like you know the master or the person who. Would you call the top level person there the master at something? I mean, well, in pro sumo, there's a there's a we would call. I mean, it's hard to translate because it's like a combination of a head coach, and they use loosely in English they also say a stable master, but it's oyakata. But it's basically someone who is super successful as a competitor, 
and those are the only guys that can actually qualify to own and run a team. And you probably have seen that those two don't always translate perfectly. There's someone who is a superstar, and they're not the greatest coach. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that guy would be the ultimate authority and boss on every single thing with that team. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's fascinating. I've been. Yeah. I was in Japan last year. Mm-hmm. I did not make it to any sumo matches, but mm-hmm. I mean, I, like all, all, all any, any uh, job or profession or career, it's like you said. It's like you're in it. Mm-hmm. It's not even like I think not even just like that sumo style where it's like, hey, 14, you're going and living it. Mm-hmm. If you know someone is a train conductor there, mm-hmm. they're a train conductor. That's oh, who yeah. they are. That is their livelihood. That's they, they embrace that persona, and yeah. that's just who they are. And they're going to be the best uh, ver- version of that in there. It's, I think it's really, really interesting. Yeah, that everybody in the culture can socially accept that. It's so hard to grasp uh, for Americans. And like I said, I worked in Japan back in 1990 and on and off for a total of about a year and a half. Um, <clears throat> and it's incredible. Like, okay, so I'll give you one example, just from the sumo world. Most sumo wrestlers enter when they're in their teens in pro sumo, and they continue that lifestyle until they retire. There's no real break. And um, there's other very specific roles, and there's, n- it, there's no gray area. There's another position that's called a gyoji, which is a referee. And it's the same thing. The guy starts when he's maybe 15 years old and continues as a referee until he's like 65 for 50 years. And you have to retire at 65. And it's just a matter of uh, the changes would be when you start out, you're barefoot, you have no socks or sandals, you have a very simple kimono robe. You know, it's not even really a full kimono. Um, The things you're carrying, the the ceremonial, all, all the rituals are much simpler. Um, and then as you move up the ranks, you get fancier clothes, more perks, more benefits, et cetera, et cetera. You have to referee fewer matches each tournament. But, like, they only have those six tournaments a year, but those referees around the year are doing all these other tasks. Like, they have to master the calligraphy where they each tournament write the names of all 700 of the wrestlers in, like, very fancy calligraphy to create the ranking chart, which changes every two months. So that's – I mean, there's so much more to do, but that's one example – then there's the Yobidashi. These are these guys in pro sumo. The same thing. They start when they're about 15. They go till they're 65. All they do for 50 years straight is by hand with a few tools, they build the ring for every tournament out of clay. It takes like several days with 40 of them working on it. They build it's made it. made of clay? Yeah. Just pack clay. They break it down. You know, it's basically building, breaking it down, building it, breaking it down. Then during the tournament, they're sweeping it. They're helping bring the salt for the wrestlers to throw. It's basically... It's bizarre to a Western mindset. Like, you keep doing the same thing. You're building it, breaking it down. What are you doing? And it's just like, that's what you're trained to do. That's, you know, you're part of the team doing that. Mm-hmm. Even stranger to Americans would be another role that is, again, it's a full-time job, careered for life, basically, is a tokoyama in pro sumo. These are guys who are hairstylists. They literally, again, from about 15 years old until 65, they come in, they wake up super early every morning, they go to the heya, the, the teams where the guys are training, and they tie the top knot on each wrestler's hair. That's what they do. They, their job for their entire life is tying the sumo wrestlers in, in pro sumo have long hair. It's tied up in a certain top knot. And that's all they do. There's a career in that? They make that's enough money to... That's all they do. To tie the knots? Everything is set. Like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Now, what about the sumo wrestlers? I mean, you're talking 15 to 65. What are these guys making? Oh, no. So the, the wrestlers themselves, most of them retire when they're 25, 30, 35 maybe. You know, okay. it's like... like NFL player okay you know <clears throat> the hierarchy of course in in all sports there's a there's a pretty steep hierarchy but in sumo it's pretty extreme so if you take about 700 pro sumo wrestlers the bottom 90% on the ranking chart are getting essentially room and board and like a little bit of like an allowance basically they can go out and get a meal once in a while so they're making almost nothing Wow. and that's the incentive to move up the chart because unless you move up the chart you're not able to have any kind of freedom. You're not able to really spend money. You're actually not even supposed to be able to get married. And technically, if you get married, you can move out to a nearby apartment. You don't have to sleep on the floor with everyone else. But that all depends on moving up the ranks. So that the top 10%, so we're talking roughly the top 72 guys, actually, the top two divisions. Those top 72 guys, they start making six figures a year, which doesn't sound great, but, I mean, it's, it's okay. It doesn't sound like a super high-level pay for a pro athlete. But it gets much higher from then. And when you're looking at the top handful of guys, they're making many millions, if not tens of millions, from their their normal uh, salaries, bonuses for winning matches, sponsor prizes for winning matches, bonuses for winning tournaments, all kinds of um, 
fan clubs and uh, uh, I guess we could say in English, kind of, well, kind of like sponsors, personal sponsors. Mm. Are these the leagues that are paying them? Like who pays them that base salary? Oh, the base salary is there, but the very, very top guys are probably making a lot more than they're making from the base sal salary with endorsements, sponsors, and probably Yakuza, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, I mean, it, it's crazy. But um, the the top of the pyramid, the guy's making, like, huge amounts of money. I mean, I guess you could say in basketball it's like LeBron versus a, a new guy on the team. Okay. You know, but but still, it's it's very, very steep. Where the, the crazy thing for an American sensibility is that the bottom 90% of the guys, and some of these guys are in that by, bottom 90% their entire career. They never make it up to the top 72. Mm -hmm. So they might be in pro sumo for five or 10 or 15 years, they never get into the quote unquote salary, salaried ranks, which is uh, security is the word. Um, but I think that's like most sports. Cause I mean, if you're not in the NBA, yeah. cause there's only what 300, 350 spots yep. in the NBA mm -hmm. and the majority of players are trying to play in the minor leagues. You know, mm -hmm. I went through all that playing around the world, playing overseas and all these three or four different leagues that exist there. Mm -hmm. Cause again, even if you're not in some of those big leagues, you're not making even six figures. Yeah, in some of those leagues. That that's true. That, that actually is a good analogy. The, the only thing I would say that probably is different is those bottom ninety percent. They're training all together, but they're also basically the free labor for the team. In other words, these guys are going food shopping for the rest of the team. They're cooking, they're cleaning the toilets. So it would be like you have your your pro basketball league outside the NBA. And you're one of the players, but you're also cleaning the locker room. You're the towel boy. You're, you know, so <laughs> it, it takes it to a real extreme level there in Japan. Hierarchy-wise, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. I hate listening to the toilet guy. Exactly. You're the toilet guy because you're number 682. That's right. You're not going to get there unless you're not going to stop cleaning the toilets until you get better. Exactly. Which I think is a part of, uh, I wouldn't say martial arts, but just uh, any discipline training, discipline mm -hmm. learning. You know, there's a whole mental psyche to let someone know, hey, listen, you're here. This mm -hmm. is what you know. In order to get where you want to get to, mm -hmm. there's... There's just so much sacrifice, so much you stretch you have to put yourself through to mm -hmm. engineer in order to be great Yeah, and get out of those messes. And, and you're right. It's pretty extreme, though, in most martial arts and in a lot of culture in Asia. And the hard thing is where you take something like that and you bring it at, at an amateur level, sumo here, and Americans are not usually going to go for that. You oh, know, that so might be considered <laughs> like torture. Yeah, exactly. Or like abuse or like you're running a... You know, a cult and yeah. saying, hey, you have to cook for us yep. in order to, to train here. Like, you couldn't. Yeah. So exactly. <laughs> so it's always a fine line in terms of how you take something from another culture. You present it to, you know, a different culture. What will people accept, not accept? How can you keep true to the core of, of that discipline, whatever it is, and still make it palatable to a different group or a different audience, either for participants or for people watching? And that's kind of like what we've been through over the years in terms of Finding where that fine line is. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, I know we said martial art. Sumo is considered a martial art, and maybe you could define for me what, what is a martial art, because I don't think I properly know. <laughs> I don't know if I could give you an, a perfect definition, but martial, I mean, that that's related to the, the god Mars, the god of war. Mm -hmm. And so it's I, as far as I would say, and I'm, someone's going to tell me I'm wrong here, but I would say, you know, a fighting uh, art. Don't worry about yeah, that. Exactly. It's all perspective. People. Yeah. So it would be, you know, basically a, a something that you, a style or a technique or a system that you could use for combat or for fighting. Okay. And so, you know, anything from, and, and now, now the thing, the thing I'll, the caveat there I'll put is that some martial arts are probably a lot more practical on the street, you know, like a karate or a, or a kung fu or a krav maga or a taekwondo or judo or something like that. Sumo is tamed down a little bit in the sense that there's no punching and kicking. So in terms of the practical use on the street, it's not going to be as much because you're not facing punches and kicks when you're in the sumo ring. On the other hand, because there aren't so many violent moves, you're able to compete and practice a lot more. And it's more accessible to a lot of people as opposed to if they go in to an actual combat discipline where they're punching and kicking all the time. It's a little bit, you know, unless someone's really into, you know, boxing, let's say they're not going to they're not going to go sparring in that sense. I so. felt a sense of Aikido too, like mm -hmm. using someone else's energy mm -hmm. against them. I think I saw that one of the videos of the, uh, one of the sumo wrestlers going out with another sumo wrestler and, you know, I think uh, to claim a point, someone has to fall to the ground, their hands hit the ring. And that's e either the touch the, well, any part of the body goes down besides the soles of the feet or going out of the ring. So you want to either push your opponent down or out. Okay, so I saw somebody, you know, just completely kind of move out of the way mm -hmm. when somebody saw someone going for that push and that person fell out of the ring. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think a lot of people don't even know, you know, how the point system works. But I wanted to go into, too, is 
because I think we, we got on this with the financials mm-hmm. about how what these guys are going to do, how much money they're going to make mm-hmm. and how we value that, because I think that's happening in the NFL now. It's like, hey, we have to pay these guys 20 million dollars because they're killing themselves mm-hmm. for the entertainment of all of us. And we somehow there's a, that primal part in us that loves it. You know, it's, we all can see that. Oh, man, it's so sad. This guy can't speak properly now. He can't even walk. He's mm-hmm. been so damaged. But man, every Sunday at 12 o'clock, I'm, I'm glued. Yeah. I'm watching. So, you know, a lot of these guys put themselves, I mean, I know here you guys have all these different weight divisions, but in Japan, most of these guys are weighing 200, 300 pounds, some 600 pounds. Yeah, sure. In, in pro sumo in Japan, there's no weight class. Okay. And the International Sumo Federation based in Japan specifically made weight classes so that sumo would be more accepted worldwide and also so that it has the potential to become an Olympic sport. But yeah, you're right. In Japan, basically, it's not about weight. Traditionally, it's just about use whatever you got and you know from basketball. Uh, use whatever you're able to do, regardless of your height, weight, or any other factors. Um, and that's kind of the attitude in Japan. Okay. Yeah. There's no weight class. So, then, yeah. so are these guys going in with the strategy to say, hey, I need to consume this much food in order to you know, have this physique? Because I mean, predominantly, most sumo wrestlers are very large, large-in-life humans. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. There's a lot of stereotypes there. People, you know, here don't really understand it. But, you know, if if you're a you know, Yakata, a pro sumo coach in Japan, and you're scouting you guys for your team, one of the last things you're really looking for is just sheer size. You're looking for athleticism. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you were in, a, let, I mean, here a great example, Brandon. Let's say, let's say I'm a, a coach for a basketball team, and I'm only going to look at a photo of all the potential players lined up, and be like, ah, oh, yeah, forget him. You know, all oh, these guys are really tall. This is like when I go out for pickup basketball. I, can't, I still can't even get picks. That's, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Completely relatable. Exactly. And so, people are only looking for, you know, the basketball. Oh, who's the taller one here? And, that, and that's it. And then, you know, you put someone who's very skilled, like I mean, I know you are, on the court, and you know, you can dominate these guys. So the same thing in Japan, the principle is they want to find someone who's very athletic. And in sumo, the keys are, of course, strength, speed, but also flexibility. People who have a lot of, uh, you know, who are very limber mm-hmm. is very important because you're in a small space. You have to move very quickly. You have to have good reflexes and uh, you have to be able to tumble and roll to avoid injury. So it's, it's, it's a combination of these factors, but essentially it's athleticism they're looking for. And so if you take a really athletic guy who's 200 pounds and you take a big guy who's fat who's 400 pounds if they're even if they both train together the guy who's more athletic will almost always beat the bigger guy mm. if the bigger guy is not only big but also very skilled and you know strong and fast as well then the size advantage will probably take over but um, all things considered if you're smaller but you have something that the bigger guy doesn't have you can use that to your advantage and, and the same in basketball obviously mm-hmm. you know let's say that the bigger guy's strong, but he's very slow. And so if you're small, but you're fast, and you can get a better position, you know, definitely a, a good chance to win. Functional movement training has become very popular. I mean, and it's being adopted by people in all sports because mm-hmm. people are, like you said, noticing. And it's not something like it's brand new. Mm-hmm. People in Japan have been practicing like this martial art, for example, um, for 2,000 years. So all the, uh, what is it that these sumo wrestlers are doing in their training that mm-hmm. makes them, you know, be 200, some 300 pounds or even bigger that they can move so well? What kind of uh, f- uh, exercises are they doing? Yeah, good question. So f- before I even get into that, I'll just say one thing about the size. Typically what happens, and I'll use an example. I'll give you one example of a guy I know very well. He's been a good friend of mine for 13 years or so now. So Biamba, he's just, this is just a perfect example. This guy grew up in Mongolia. When he was 15, he was recruited into pro sumo. He had never done sumo. He spent about five years in pro sumo. He left early when he was 20, various reasons. How know. do you get recruited outside of Japan? Like they just said, there's this kid in Mongolia. Mongolians are freaking awesome at wrestling. They're the best. In fact, all the top guys, are, not all, but the only Yokozuna, the top rank now uh, in pro sumo, are Mongolians. Really? Oh, yeah. Mongolians have dominated pro sumo for the last 15, 20 years. Anyway, so this guy, Byamba, um, he left early. He might have been up near the top two in the pros, but he left early. That was good for us. We brought him over here for a movie pro- project back in 2006, and he's been with us here ever since. When he went into pro sumo, he was about 15, 16. He was maybe six feet, 190, 200 pounds, all muscle, no belly on him. And after five years in pro, pro sumo, he's built up to about 6'1", about 350, 360 little bit of a belly but there's not one ripple he's just solid like a rock there's muscles 
So mm-hmm. putting on that 150 plus pounds, almost all of that was muscle. Wow. And it, but it wasn't done overnight. It's not like you, you're trying to become a bodybuilder and you're killing yourself just trying to specifically do the muscle. That weight gain went naturally along with the training he would do. And his body fat when he was 350 in Japan, they measured it at 11%. So, you know, that's pretty, <laughs> that's impressive. It's pretty healthy, yeah. Very healthy. And he used to, you know, when he, you know, again, he was in his late teens, so they got him early and they really pushed him, which is what they want to do to get the guy well-trained. He would do four or five hours of training every morning with everybody else sparring. Then after his, their lunch and their nap, in the afternoon, his coach would push him to do extra training. He'd spend another couple hours doing weight training and drills and just insane amounts of training. And so kind of the, to answer your question about what kind of training they do in Japan, there's a lot of exercises, but kind of the three or four most fundamental exercises. In fact, the most fundamental, I don't know if I should, I don't have much space to show it here, but <laughs> I, could, I could try. I don't know. Oh, you're, you're shooting too. I probably wouldn't be in camera, but uh, you got it right here. Um, okay. I'll just try to show the rudimentary is the flexibility and the limberness is so important. So you go into the, the stomp they do, they go down like this and then lean over and the foot goes up as high as possible like that wow. and goes down. Now, doing that once or twice is one thing, but imagine spending one hour straight doing this about 300 times in a row. That's a pretty good range of motion right there. You yeah, got. and I'm not that great on it. You know, I mean, you did that with pants on, though, too. Yeah. That's, I'm pretty impressed. I mean, in the small space. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm half their size, so it's not that <laughs> impressive. Uh, but imagine doing that an hour straight. That's building up flexibility. I could add that one in right there. There you go. It's a good train. It's going to be great for basketball too. Yeah. A couple of reasons. Number one, first of all, flexibility is off the charts. I mean, you can do any, once you do that, forget an hour, let's say you do that for 10 minutes. Yeah. Right after that, you start doing, you know, regular stretching. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so flexible now. Also the, um, the strength part is like you're putting all your weight on one leg. So it's helping your balance and your strength all in one. It's all good. Yeah, and then the endurance training, being able to do that for such a long time. So it's kind of like traditional. There's a reason why they do these things in traditional Japanese culture. There's a reason why in Kung Fu they're doing certain exercises because they've been proven over time. So mm-hmm. that's like uh, the hardest thing to train somebody these days is to, like you said, okay, listen, we're going to do the same drill and we're going to do it just for five weeks straight. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I don't want this trainer anymore. Especially because mm-hmm. I used to coach kids in basketball and some professionals. I actually, had a kid from Japan who flew from Japan, didn't tell anybody, he found me on couch surfing, mm-hmm. flew to Miami, mm-hmm. and just showed up. Hey, listen, I, I said it's gonna cost this much to train with me, this mm-hmm. and that, shows up. But, you know, it's just so respectable respectable and admirable. He's playing overseas right now. Oh, really? He went back to Japan, he went from like, he would call himself a four when he got there, skill-wise, mm-hmm. and he was a nine. Like, kids were like, where did you go? Like, who, what did you do with his name's Kaz? Like, mm-hmm. you're not the same person. <laughs> and so he played in Ireland this year, had a wow. great season, and he just signed with a team in uh, Austria. S- but again, that's the <sighs> thing I relate to in that Japanese culture. Like, this guy just wants it mm-hmm. so bad. That would do anything. Um, no, but I totally see uh, the hip mobility mm-hmm. is one of the biggest factors in a lot of guys' health. It's, it's connected to your core. Mm-hmm. I don't consider your core just your abdomen. It's, it's your lower back, mm-hmm. hip flexors, hamstrings. And if one of those is going to be tight, and usually it's people's hips, their hip flexors, you know, I used to not be able to get out of a car. You know, I'm thinking about you shooting your hip up mm-hmm. all the way up there like that. A lot of people have, you know, I want to say shitty mobility. Besides, you know, these guys having great functional range of movements, like what do sumo wrestlers like struggle with? You know, in the sport, their health, after sports, their life. Yeah. So again, we'll kind of break it down between pro and amateur sumo wrestlers. So if we're talking about pro sumo wrestlers in Japan. Um, a guy like Bianba I mentioned, but in, in general, any pro sumo wrestler has to be super devoted and determined because you get an injury, you have some other setback, you have really harsh discipline, um, you know, you're doing training hours a day, so it's going to take a lot of devotion and discipline and patience to persevere. Um, but that's, the, that's obviously what it's like in Japanese pro sumo. I want to mention, though, outside of pro sumo on an amateur level, and I've learned this. I didn't learn this overnight because I started a sumo club for fun without knowing what I was doing. And over the years, I've been fortunate to have some of these guys from Japan, Mongolia, and others come over. We've brought them into our group. And I've learned this over a great period of time. Um, But, for example, many Americans who get into sumo, the tough thing is people tend to be very injury prone because they're not doing those fundamentals. So we have a lot of guys who are great athletes. They're macho. they're, They're bodybuilders. They come in. And they practice a few times, and then after a few weeks, oh my gosh, I tore something, I can't move, or, you know, 
and they don't stick with it. Mm-hmm. And so that goes back to learning the fundamentals. And I totally didn't get that myself for many years when I was kind of starting out and just doing it as a hobby. And now I see that there's a reason why you do all these fundamentals. There's a reason why you build up all the basics first, because if you skip steps and you, you skip the strength part or the flexibility part or, or, or some of the movements, it's going to come back to bite you later. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's outside of prosum when on amateur level, especially for Americans, that's one of the biggest challenges. We talked about this a little earlier where people want a shortcut. It's any weekend warrior who's going yeah. to go out and play pickup basketball and is not, like I said, it doesn't have to be you doing basketball training, but you're mm-hmm. working on all these, you're putting your body, like you're saying, that engineer stress idea. Mm-hmm. Like where can I stretch and push my arms doing an exercise, whether it's just like rotating your arms back here. Mm-hmm to get that stretch and that range of motion because people tear their labrums like crazy. It's like, you're not supposed to be tearing your labrum that casually going out, going out for a layup and your arm goes backwards. You're supposed to have your body move in all these different and weird positions all the time. It's, it's, it's sad to see. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what about back to the sumo guys? Um, a sumo wrestler, excuse mm-hmm. me, but like, you know, after sports, what, is there something that they, you know, struggle with? Is it financials? Is it finding a way to do things after the sport? Yeah, it's a great question. So in Japanese pro sumo, if you're one of that those top tier guys, mm-hmm. and it's really not even the top 72, it tends to be usually the top 30, 40 guys at any given time, those guys have the potential to become an oyakato, the coach slash stable master. So if you're one of the really elite guys and you retire, typically, if, if you want to, and you have enough supporters and sponsors because you actually need a lot of money to kind of buy that position, you'll become a coach. And it's a really cushy job, but again, it's a lot of responsibility and boring stuff that you have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So the top guys are expected usually to become these coaches. If you're kind of maybe the second tier or kind of the middle of the pack, a lot of those guys end up retiring and they coach college teams or they coach high school teams or they open up a Chonkonabe restaurant. The Chonkonabe is the stew that all summer wrestlers eat. Or they they work in a different restaurant. They, They go into some field where it's related to sumo because all the sumo wrestlers, when they go into Japanese pro sumo, they have to cook. There's a Japanese stew. Well, let's go back to the soup thing. Stew, yeah. So, so there's a, just like a chain, not a chain, but there's a, several Japanese sumo wrestlers who just, that's a potential career choice to just oh, yeah. go open up a stew shop that well, we look, all eat. All those guys, when they join, when they're kids, one of the first things they learn they besides cook. That's right. right. That's all they do. And so when they, so let's say, let's say you're a mid-level guy. You never really make it to the top. You've been there 10 years. You're in your late 20s or you're 30 and like, what am I going to do now? I only know how to push people and I know how to cook stew. So you're going to probably go work in a restaurant. They might go work in a warehouse. They might do therapeutic massage. They might pass rushing in the uh, NFL. There you go. Because, I mean, it's all pushing. There you go. Protecting the guy who's running at you. Yeah. Surprise, a lot of guys don't get converted over from that, especially with the great athleticism that they have. There have been a few cases where it was attempted and for various reasons. um, Well, I'll, I'll give you one example. One of the greatest Japanese, not Mongolian, because there's very few Japanese, but one of the greatest Japanese yokozuna in, in recent memory, about 20 years ago, and this guy was not big. He was about, at his prime, 5'9 and under 300 pounds. Oh. And he, he could beat all the bigger guys. Wakanohana, he was the older brother of, of Takanohana. He was even a, a, a more successful yokozuna. And yokozuna is the highest rank. It's like 1% of pro sumo wrestlers reach that rank. Um... So he actually, when he retired, I don't know how serious he was, but he came out and tried out for an NFL team and it didn't go well because I, I, I wasn't there, but I, I think it's partly because he lost a lot of weight after retiring. He was even skinnier and smaller and they just, and he hadn't done those drills before and he was already about 30. So if they get someone who's still pretty young and they teach him the drills and the routine and, and everything, there's definitely potential. I know another guy, a friend of mine, he was in pro sumo. He's originally from Russia, and he was at the top levels of pro sumo, almost very close to the pinnacle, and there was all kind of scandals. He was basically kicked out, came to the States, top college player uh, somewhere in Florida um, in, in, uh, in football, and he had three, three NFL teams recruiting him. And the weird thing there was he couldn't join the NFL because unlike the NBA, the NBA, as you know, is very international friendly. You got guys from all over the world who join, you know, you have from Europe, from China, from Africa, whatever. Um, the NFL, from what I understand from his manager, wouldn't accept him 
uh, they wouldn't basically sponsor his visa. They need someone who's already legal. He was, he was on a student visa, but they need someone who's already legal to work here. And I don't know if that's still the case, but that was the case about five, six years ago for him. Unreal. It's incredible. And, and these three teams wanted him, but they were like, oh, we can't really sponsor your visa. You have to, you know, whatever, get married to an American. And who knows? Yeah. I would actually love to see, though, like these unreal athletic defensive ends, mm -hmm. like, you know, the Jadavian Clownies, uh, J.J. Watts. I'd love to see them get thrusted into, you know, a sumo match or a pro sumo oh. out there and see how they would do. We've done this. So first, really? first of all, there's been many cases where there's been NFL teams who did like exhibition games in Japan. They take some of the players, they take some of the linemen, and they take them to a pro sumo team, and they lose every time. The, the sumo wrestlers beat them. Because, again, even though it's similar, the movement, the, the, the football players are kind of out of their... Out of their is it because there's a little bit more speed that the the U.S. athlete or the football player is trying to uh, portray and exhibit? Like these guys are trying to come speed off the side, mm -hmm. get to that quarterback, mm -hmm. and I think that could you know, after after talking with you and watching mm -hmm. a lot of these sumo matches, like could kind of be manipulated against them. It could be used against them that speed mm -hmm. of them trying to go, especially in a tighter space. Yeah, and they get on a football field. Exactly. Yeah, there's there's a few subtle things there, and one of them is, I mean, obviously in football. One player is trying to get past the other. One player is trying to stop the other. In sumo, both players are trying to actually hit each other, essentially. So there's a little bit of a different thing there. But, um, you know, and I mean, another factor is, let's say, the mawashi, the sumo belt. You know, if you get a guy, even a small guy in Japan, who knows how to do sumo and he gets that belt, it doesn't matter if the NFL guy is enormous. That grip on the belt, that leverage point, you can do almost anything. If the other guy doesn't know what he's doing, forget about it. I experienced that in, uh, what's the martial art? Uh, Jiu-jitsu. Uh -huh. And, yeah, I'm like, wait, wait, you hold on. You can tug mm -hmm. and pull those jackets. Yeah. And when you do that, it's a huge pivot point oh, yeah. in using leverage against somebody. I remember uh, one of the former guests on our show, she, um, Fabi Borgia. She's a Brazilian Jiu-jitsu world mm -hmm. champion in San Antonio. Um and she had me get in the ring with one of her star pupils. Mm -hmm. Girl, though. You know, I'm thinking, oh, yeah. 20-year-old girl, no problem. I knew mm -hmm. she was going to kick my ass, but not that bad. Like, I could not do anything. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, there was no no point I was in control of a match or the wrestling like, at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great, uh, great ego demoralizing. It was perfect, just exactly what I need, but, yeah, got oh, my yeah. ass kicked. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's – and, and that, that kind of teaches you, too, that – even if disciplines are similar, and, and it's good to have some similarity and crossover, mm -hmm. when it comes to that specific discipline, unless you know exactly what you're doing, someone who does is, is uh. going to beat you. And you've, you've probably gone against some incredible athletes in basketball, but you can beat them because they don't know exactly how to move in that particular sport. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. Um, what has been the reception of you bringing a Japanese sport to, or you know, the sport here to the U.S.? I mean, it's a, again, it's a martial art. Mm -hmm. and martial arts crossover from all these different cultures. But what's been the reception from people in Japan and then people in the U.S.? Yeah, so it's been interesting, especially since we... So, first of all, let me say this. We are really fortunate in that we have three or four of the most unique guys in the world uh, in sumo here. And the first one I mentioned, Biamba. I mean, this guy, like I said, he's just incredible athlete, so charismatic, fluent in Mongolian, Japanese, and now English. Just He's been on... We've booked him on hundreds of TV shows and commercials. Unbelievable. I mean, he's just like kind of the superstar. Um, and then we've recently, about five, six years ago, we also got Yama, former pro, the heaviest Japanese human being in recorded history, at about 600 pounds. He's, he, that's the heaviest? Yep. And this guy, we have him here in L.A., and he's doing full leg splits, just like all the pro sumo wrestlers. He's putting his legs six feet up in the air. He rides a bicycle at 600 pounds. Stop. No, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. It's, it's I got to see that. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. We have it come down to practice. We have a practice. And then we recently got another Japanese guy who's almost Yama size. And so we, the two Jap, the, we have some smaller Japanese university guys, like university champion. Um, but like, for example, these two Japanese guys here in LA, together they're well over a thousand pounds. And they're each bigger than, I think, any of the current Japanese pro sumo wrestlers among the 700 or so that are in Japan. So it's like, this is almost like the capital of Japanese sumo giants. Um, right here in LA, believe it or not. And who who knew? Yeah. Um, but uh, to answer your question, what was your question again? <laughs> like, what's been the reception? Oh yeah, like, so, has it been warm? Has it been yes. people animosity of you? Like people in Japan don't appreciate yeah. you coming and bringing this over here, or even people in the U.S. nowadays. Yeah, I'm sure like uh, on edge because hey, this is not your sport. This is not your art. Yeah, it, it's tricky. It's tricky. So first of all, most people are generally like sumo, cool. That's awesome. 
you know, generally people are like, that's great. I'd love to see, you know, it's fan friendly because it's visual, easy to understand and it's exotic. What a big dude, he's half naked, whatever. Um, you know, girls actually love it. You'd be surprised because, you know, guys get to see girls in bikinis. How often do girls get to see guys, you know, similarly clad? <laughs> uh, that's the weird thing, by the way. I got a little side note here. I'll remember what we're talking about. No, but, no worries. Um, as opposed to, let's say, a UFC or, you know, either MMA or boxing, where it's very, very male dominant in terms of the fans. Um, at the USUM Open, if we have 5,000 fans, it's probably pretty much 50-50 men and women. Wow. Women love it. You know, they're screaming. And not only that, it's, you know, because there's not a lot of bloodshed and it's more refined with all the rituals, it's not just adults. So we see kids. We see whole families. We see three generations, grandparents, parents, and kids coming together. So the one cool thing about the reception to sumo is that it's family-friendly. It's not punching and kicking. There's not a lot of bloodshed. It's not super violent. It's beautiful to watch when they execute a good technique. It's easy to understand. And um, like I said, women probably like it as much as we like seeing a uh, you know a beauty pageant oh, totally. anyway well maybe of course i people are going to laugh when they hear that because i don't want to see a fat guy well look a lot of the guys are really muscular and, and so it depends but um to answer your question yeah in general people are like hey that's cool but a lot of people are like oh boy it's going to be some guys just bumping around in the ring some obese guys or the universal universal reaction this has been for a couple decades now that we've been doing these events universal reaction to people from people who see a tournament is that was not what I expected. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, what do you mean? It was so dynamic. I can't believe the techniques, how fast it is, the moves. That's the one thing that people always say. They think it's going to be something slow and cumbersome. They're amazed at how um, athletic and energetic the matches are. So that's the kind of stereotype people have before they come in. They think it's going to be very slow, and then they're amazed by how rapid it is. And, and now, now... A different thing, a different aspect, though, is in general, fans from all backgrounds, it's not just one age group or cultural group or ethnic group or income group or whatever. In general, all fans are like, that was great. I loved it. There's always a few people who are critical and they say, hey, you don't have the Japanese referee who does that ritual. Hey, you don't have the salt throwing, you know, and we're like, OK, that's the fine line we're talking about, because um we could try doing some of those things, but that would be sacrilege because we're not pro sumo. So actually some of the things they do in pro sumo, like the referees, rituals, his costume, some of the hanging decorations you they have. build that clay arena every... Uh... It's not impossible, but it's a fortune to yeah. do. But even if we did that, now building the clay arena, building the, the clay platform is okay. That could actually be done in amateur sumo, but doing things that are specific to pro sumo would literally be, you know, blasphemy in a way because it, it's, the like I said, it's all in, in Japan pro sumo is almost like a military thing it's almost like a religious thing and we couldn't to pretend to take on that role so it, it, it there's a lot of subtlety there and it's taken a long time for i and, and the people i work with to kind of grasp how to do this and it, you're never going to get a hundred percent of the audience satisfied there's always going to be someone who's who says this is too too far this way too far the other way um but overall 95 percent of people i would say are crazy about it and they love it and there's like i said a few people who who say, hey, I want it to be like this or like that. But it's surprising. We've almost never had people who say, hey, I hate it. This is all awful. No, it's always a comment like, hey, I want it to be more like Japan or you should change this a little. It's almost always been positive criticism in that sense. Nice. Yeah. And I saw, I mean, obviously we can tell now, I saw those moves you just put out there and mm -hmm. the stretching moves. You got to get in the ring yourself mm -hmm. and sumo. How often do you sumo? Oh, I've been doing it probably more than any other American that I can think of. I mean, I've been... Practicing, coaching, competing nonstop since mid '90s. Wow! And um, now, when I produce the U.S. Sumo Open, like I said, it's the biggest tournament. I'm I'm the scorekeeper, announcer, producer, directing all the staff, coordinating all the athletes, doing everything nonstop. I mean, literally, 30 minutes sleep the night before usually. And so I can't compete in that tournament. But in other tournaments, I compete. I've been the the, the national champion uh, multi times. Um, and even in the lightweight, I'm smaller than all the other lightweight guys usually. They're, well. Lightweight is 85 kilos, which is 187, 188. People weigh in at that weight two days before. So they're stepping in the ring at 200. I'm about 155. So I'm like way lighter than, than almost all the other lightweights too. So, yeah, I mean, I try to keep active with it. And do you still, when's the last time you competed for like a national champion? A couple months ago. How'd you do? Uh, the last two years, I, I have injuries. I have a pretty severe shoulder injury right now. But 
until two years ago, I was pretty much getting first or second for a long time. And I'm, I'm going to be 50 next year. Um, but the, this year and last year, I was, I think, fourth both times, which, yeah, I mean, whatever. It's, it's okay. But yeah. it just shows you. There's a, it, the good side of it, there's a, there's a very strong group of young guys who are motivated and they're interested and they have potential and they're doing well. So, I mean, just to be expected, there's, there's a new wave of guys. And um, How many people are competing in a national national championship this is we're talking national for the u.s right here. yeah and it's not a lot I and mean, that's the surprising thing there's probably 40 50 and let's say on the lightweight this year there were probably 10 or something so it's not a lot actually wow you know so hey you could be the next lightweight champion oh god yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i'm definitely interested in coming out there and trying to trying a sumo class yeah that'd be the thing i mean please i also just want to like the whole thing the reason of the show you know my mission for all this stuff is to, to experience what you know people love to do and mm -hmm. they've chose that as a career path and they want to do it and i want to take part in mm -hmm. that unique experience it's not something that not everybody can't do mm -hmm. anybody can go to japan or someone go take a sumo class with you in long beach but no one's doing it yeah so i'm gonna go take part please go jump in it yeah yeah and actually actually our classes these days are in carson right next to torrance for years they were up in van nuys we've had them in west l.a before that ucla but um long beach is just the venue where we held, held the tournament at cal state long beach the pyramid okay. but yeah come on by no problem Men. Yeah, cool. Uh, as and, long as we can bring the cameras, too. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll yeah, figure it yeah. out. Um, I should mention one thing, too, though. You said about, I should mention about Japan. It, you know, over the years, we've been very careful in terms of what we release to Japanese media, because, like, Japanese media have been all over us. I mean, they want to cover everything, because it's like the Japanese public is like, Americans doing sumo, foreigners are trying to do this. And the, the attitude... Um, generally has been very friendly in a sense from Japanese media, but a lot of times it's very, you know, you know, like, you know, kind of like, uh -huh, these guys don't know what they're doing, you know, it's, and I understand where that's coming from. So we've been very careful. We only release very limited footage. We don't want to show things that are too over the top, which is disrespectful in Japanese culture. You're not supposed to celebrate and fist pump and, you know, all this other stuff. Um, but it's funny because organically, especially in recent years, on our YouTube videos, we're getting more and more Japanese people commenting in Japanese, and the Japanese public themselves are getting really intrigued because they're like, this is so fresh, this is so exciting, because here's the thing, in Japanese pro sumo, sometimes it feels, some people have said, some people say it's sometimes a little stagnant because the techniques are very similar, the guys are going against almost the same opponents every time, it gets a little bit less exciting um, there's been accusations and even proof over the years of match match fixing and it, and it becomes a little bit less dynamic and so when and when they see Americans competing or they see international guys competing on an amateur level they're like there's no match fixing here no one's making money these guys genuinely love to do it so a lot of the Japanese public were really getting into watching what we've posted on YouTube interesting and so there's again though it's a it's a very tricky thing because the media or certain people in Japan might portray it in a very negative light and we have to be careful because we have a very good relation with the the governing bodies in japan of amateur sumo and pro sumo we do a lot of different gigs and shoots with them all the time so we have to be kind of careful where we step but at the same time it's encouraging to see the average japanese person who likes sumo or just the average japanese person period actually largely posting very very positive comments about what we we've done here oh you're doing it out of respect yeah and i think and like I talking with you now mm -hmm. and after watching all these videos, you know, I can see that, you know, you're doing that out of respect, you're doing out of respect of, you know, the art itself, as well as, you know, the culture that it comes from. Mm -hmm. You're not trying to step on anybody's toes, especially when you're trying to limit what you would see most people try to do is put as much content or distribution about what they're doing mm -hmm. and how they're portraying it out there. But you guys are trying to filter that or dilute it, like you said before, mm -hmm. and limit what people can see. That way it's more for towards the sport. Mm -hmm. And people in Japan have been reacting even stronger to it. Would you say most of your audience is U.S. audience? Oh, yeah. When it comes to watching those videos? Well, let's say what we have on YouTube, we have uh, statistics. And um, it's definitely mainly U.S. I don't have the numbers. My, someone I work with has all that. Mm. Uh, I don't have it offhand. But we have really large viewership in a lot of different countries. I mean, anywhere from, if I remember, from you know Japan to Germany to Indonesia to India to uh, Brazil. I mean, you name it. They're, you know, Turkey, uh, Russia. You know, people everywhere are watching them, and it's kind of cool. And 
if it's okay, I'll just, I just thought of something else. I'm going on a tangent here, but no, go for it. in terms, here's, here's the thing. Here's a, something that, again, I'm often, you've talked to a lot of people and I've just kind of gone on this, this path without planning it. You know, I didn't like, you wanted to be a basketball player. I didn't really plan. I just kind of developed. And now after all these years, I'm thinking, gosh, knowing what I know now, I would have done things differently. And one thing I'm recognized, I've known this forever, but I should be more aware of it now. And, um, is that there's certain things that I can do and the, the, the business partner that I work with can do. And there's certain, there's tons of opportunities we're missing that if we had the right elements, the right people involved, just like let's say on a basketball team or a coach or whatever, that we could do so much more. So I'm starting to recognize this, but I, I you know, I'm normally not a very active guy going out there to meetings and, and, you know, socializing and stuff. So I don't actually have a huge network, but a lot of people are really good at that. They're great salespeople. They're great marketers. And um, I just know based on our experience, and we have done some broadcasts or partial broadcasts of events, you know, ESPN online, we did universal sports two hour broadcast a few years ago and everything we've put on, or we've been on a lot of ESPN shows. We've been a lot of, a lot, a lot, a whole bunch of other shows. The reaction has been amazing. So I know, I just know that if some, you know, if we have the right broadcast platform, whether it's on TV or an internet platform and we have regular tournaments, people are going to go crazy. People are going to love it. I've started to realize like, hey, I can't just wait for that to happen. We have to find the right partners, associates, people to work with that can make that happen. So that's, I don't know if that's kind of a lesson in a sense where let's say you're doing your thing, someone's doing their thing. And at a certain point you realize like, hey, there's so much more that can be done, but you can't do it alone. You have to have the right team of people. You have to have people with different perspectives. And, you know, you probably have some ideas and you probably have some experience with that as well. I'm sure where you can do only so much, but then you realize, hey. There's, there's a bigger picture there. There's there's definitely more potential with the right group of people. Thousand percent. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, I couldn't set up, you know, this setup right here mm-hmm. with the mics, the cameras. You know, luckily, got a guy, mm-hmm. Brian, the yep. producer over there. Shout out to Brian. He's taking a story at the perfect time, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because it, it comes down to that. Like, hey, I don't want to put this out mm-hmm. unless it's the best. And I've become a stickler on that side where it's like, oh, I'm only putting out stuff now mm-hmm. if it's the highest quality. I just don't want to put something that's just mm-hmm. okay. Which I've like taken a 180. Yeah. Which I don't like. I need to be putting a little bit more out. It, it's a fine line. It's a very fine line. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the lesson I learned back in uh, 2001, first USUM Open. So I was teaching more than full time. I had multiple teaching jobs. And um, it's weird in life. Sometimes something just comes to you and you're like, okay, I'm going to try this. And you don't realize what you're doing at the time. You know, if I, if I really thought through what I was doing, I was like, this is insane. You're crazy. Like a business person was like, you're stupid. What are you doing? You know, you're, this is the, the stupidest thing ever. You know, it, what, what it amounted to was I was working 10 hours every night on the sumo stuff, emailing and then calling during my breaks between teaching jobs and driving when I was driving. And all the money I had from teaching, plus putting liens on my car, bank loans, everything to put on this tournament, where I lost everything and more. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was insane. Um, but somehow trying to think what what I was going to mention about that. Uh, anyway, somehow it continued at the time it was insane to, to do that, but somehow it continued and developed into this. Oh, and that was it. You know, at the time I didn't think from a business business perspective at all. I just thought, Hey, this will be cool. Let me just do whatever I can to make it the best it can be. And the very first tournament I invited Konishki who is actually the heaviest pro sumo wrestler ever. He had recently retired, a Hawaiian guy. And we brought him, and we didn't think he'd say yes, but he agreed, and we had to get him three seats on the airplane and then two more seats for his managers. You know, and on and on and on. It got, you know, we brought in a team from Japan. And so the, the point is, um, you know, at that time and for many years, I never thought about it from a business perspective. It was just like, I want to do the best thing I can do. It's going to be so cool. We're going to get these guys. We're going to go the extra nine yards. We're going to, you know... Um, and then over the years, especially the business partner of mine has basically been like, hey, 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 you got to also think about how to make it work financially and how to make it work longer term. Mm-hmm. I've been kind of slow and stupid, but finally I've got to the point where, OK, we, we kind of have a good balance there. Yeah, that's uh, the art, the problem of the artist. It's like, oh, yeah. no, no, it's just a good idea. Let's just execute on it. I want to do what I believe in the most. Yeah. And is that was the initial mission and vision of USA Sumo? Just, hey, I love this art want to start this tournaments but i mean it's blossomed into a whole like academy i mean you have like 
how many divisions you have uh, people you train out there? Well, I mean, in international sumo now, international rules, there's four weight classes for men and four for women plus open weight. So there's really, you know, okay. tender, you know. Um, but yeah, no, it's, if I had no kind of real goal or mission at the time. It's weird. Now, this is not necessarily the best thing for everybody, but for some reason for me, I didn't have a clear idea of what I want to do in my life. I felt certain things. In fact, I wasn't focused on outward stuff or business or creating something. I was very inward focused when I was a teenager. And um, I actually, uh, I never talked about this years ago, but hey, this is well over, this is, you know, 30 years later, let's say. So I don't mind, you know, it's okay to talk about it a little now. I um, I graduated uh, when I was still a teenager from, from college. I just, you know, was up at UCSB and I was like, hey, and I just somehow I was like, okay, I'm gonna take a ton of units. I graduated, didn't know what I was gonna do. I was 19 years old, I was teaching in Japan. And it was just, how did I end up there? I can't, for the life of me, understand how that happened. It was just, I didn't think things through. I didn't have anyone telling me what to do. I didn't have like, you know, a mentor, none of that. I just kind of an idea came and just did it at that moment. And that led it in the same thing with sumo. It's like, I didn't plan to do anything related to martial arts or sumo. I saw an exhibition uh, back in the mid nineties. I started a club just for fun. And then it grew into this. I never would have imagined this. I never, I mean, not even remotely. And the same thing happened with a lot of other things. So um, it, this isn't for everyone, but for me at least, it was just like certain, I don't know if it's like in a dream or a little voice or something kind of pushed me in a certain direction. And there were a lot of hardships, but it seems like the right direction because it became all these steps turned into something that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, at the end of the day, you want to be successful, you want to make money, but um, there's no point in doing it unless you ultimately enjoy what you're doing. And I'm sure you can relate to that too. Um, you know, people can do something they hate to do and make money, but it's not going to be sustainable uh, long-term usually. And conversely, people can do something they love to do without even being really successful, let's say on a financial level, and probably do it for a long time just because it's so much fun. Ideally, you want to have the success side and the enjoyable side together. And gradually, I think we're getting there. So now is there a mission for like USA Sumo? Like what, what direction are you guys trying to take this? Yeah, I can, that's a great question, Brandon. I can be a little more specific now. So I think there's, there's a bunch of different aspects. One is on a base, a very fundamental level, is to share sumo as a sport slash martial art with Americans. And we've been doing that anyway for many years. And now we have tools like these great guys who are Japanese pro sumo stars here to coach them and teach them even better. So we're holding regular classes. People are learning something that um, they're not gonna learn anywhere else unless they go to Japan, basically. So that, that's part of it. Then we wanna hold events, not only tournaments, but we hold exhibitions all over the country and hold exhibitions that are really high quality to have these Japanese pro sumo stars. And the goal, and we've been successful uh, every time with this, is everyone who watches it, whether it's at a, a corporate event, a private event like Elon Musk's birthday party, <laughs> really? which was, that's a whole other story. We, we've, done a, we've done a lot of these billionaire uh, private party events. Uh, I mean, we've done like a lot of Silicon Valley companies, just like their, their holiday parties uh, for, for Microsoft. And, and they want a, a sumo match? They want a sumo exhibition. Yeah, we, we do it. Uh, or whether it's a festival. We do a lot of free festivals for kids. We were up in San Francisco, Chicago, you know, all over the place every single year for these events. The audience is glued to it the whole time. They can't turn away. And at the end of that, they're so excited. They're entertained, but they're also educated. And so it's like that's one goal there to educate and entertain people together because it's not just one or the other. It's, it's something that they want to see, they enjoy, and they learn something. And so that's another part of what we do. And I think another goal or a mission is to continue doing high-quality tournaments but take them to a, another level uh, where they would be on a stable broadcast platform where people can, can see them on a regular basis. And that's something that, that I want to focus more on now because we, we have all the tools. We have these guys from Japan now who are amazing. I mean, I could produce a tournament overnight in my sleep. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy in that sense. The hard thing is to the, the logistics. We have limited staffing. You know, to, have, to get more people on board that can do the marketing, that can help with sponsors, logistics, booking the venues and stuff. If we have that right team, 
we could be doing back-to-back tournaments every week, you know, for at least, you know, a few months, let's say, in a season. Okay. That's, that's something I'd really like to get into. So right now they're once a year. Last one was this March. Uh, it just happened. The U.S. Sumo Open is once a year. We do other tournaments, but on a smaller scale. We do exhibitions, a slightly smaller scale. Any coming up? Um, yeah, but not in L.A. Uh, if you go to usasumo.com, go to the event calendar. We have a private party in L.A. here in downtown L.A. Actually, in a couple of weeks, but it's for a private event. Um, totally. But yeah, um, we have events coming up in Chicago, St. Louis, uh, South Carolina. San Francisco, uh, let's see, Denver. A few other private parties. <laughs> These, actually, the ones I mentioned, mostly public. public but yeah, right. a lot. But there's a lot of private ones that are not on the site that are... Of course, like you told me, like that's yeah. just nuts. Like Elon's, Elon's oh, yeah, that birthday was party. I could write a book about that, but I probably shouldn't because, okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you said Microsoft, all these big companies doing yeah. these corporate events to mm-hmm. have these sumo exhibitions. That's, that's Oh, it's fun. It's very Silicon Valley. Oh, and you know, <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And along with it, we've been really fortunate, you know, because there's so much interest in these guys for entertainment gigs for TV. And, um, it's crazy because obviously we just had the U S Sumo open and a month ago. And here's an example. We're on a, a Buzzfeed shoot for something called, what is it? Ultimate bucket list, I believe, uh, in three, four days from now. And then four or five days later. Yeah. Four days after that, we're in a different Buzzfeed shoot. Uh, what is that for? Oh, tasty. Okay, yeah, anyway, I shouldn't... Oh, man, I don't know when this is going to air. I maybe shouldn't disclose it. But anyway, independently, two BuzzFeed guys have, have booked us on, on different shows. But, I mean, some of the mainstream shows that these guys have appeared on, like The Bachelorette, we had our two big guys, Bianca and Yama, a few years back, spend the whole couple of days shooting for that show. For a half an hour of the show, they were training all the contestants in sumo. They were challenging them, fighting them. They rode in on bicycles. Uh, it was great. We were just on last year the CBS show Elementary, where they were staging a sumo match as as you know part of the backstory. Uh, the Yama was on the Ellen Show. We just did a shoot last year with uh, Conan O'Brien and Kevin Hart. Um, I can't even remember. We're we're nonstop on celebrity. Oh, and talking about NFL, you asked earlier. We were just on last year. Um, what's the guy's name? Martellus. Martellus Bennett. Bennett. We we had Yama, our 600-pound guy, go against him in sumo. Actually, our little Japanese university sumo guy, Takeshi, I say little, he's like 5'7", 220. Wow. Mart- Martellus couldn't take him down at all. Really? Mar- uh, Takeshi won easy one match and kind of led him, but, I mean, not even a chance. We actually did something with, talking about NFL, not Martellus, but Marcellus, what's the guy's name? Wiley? Yeah. He's on Fox Sports. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were, before that, he was on uh, ESPN Sports Nation. Yeah. And we had Bian Banyama on there with him a few years back, and and he tried to wrestle, and, and you know, he did. He got beat as well. So, anyway, that that's that's on a tangent. But I listed only a few shows, but we're probably doing 30, 40 shoots a year. So almost every week we're on one of these shows, or a lot of commercials as well. So the entertainment side has been just fascinating, uh, and meeting a lot of the, these people in the entertainment industry as well. That's fantastic, man. Yeah. Um, no, it was a fantastic time talking with you. Oh, definitely. Thank you so much for coming out. That was, yeah, man, a whole other world of sumo. I just did not know, did not see. And really hope everybody listens to this. Like, you're going to learn a lot more about this USA Sumo. And you got to go check it out because go to their calendar on their website. There's loads of events going on. Or they're probably going to be at some, one of your uh, corporate events and you won't even know it. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> and at the very at the very least, I'll, and I and thank you for having me, Brandon. At the very least... Um, people who are in the LA area and like you come and check out a practice and you know the practice is fun to do uh you know get a great athletic experience but also if you just want to watch I don't know the room can hold a few dozen people watching we don't want to have it overkill but it's great to come out and, and see the guys train as well so you know even if we don't have a big event coming up people can come out and watch the practice participate in the practice and learn something and watch those pros train that would be you know, that'd be an oh, right it's amazing. There. Yeah. It's amazing. It, it's so rare what we have and people don't know about it. And I definitely hope uh, definitely next year for the U.S. Sumo Open, we'll, uh, we'll hopefully see you out there. Um, I don't know about competing, but no, not little, even competing. Yeah, I'd love to. I would definitely be out there to watch. Yeah, that'd be really, really great to see because I did not get to see it in Japan. But also, um, I know you plugged yourself a few times, but let people know uh, where they can connect, where they can come check out these classes. And uh, if you guys got social media, if they can uh, follow you guys on a certain place. I don't even think I didn't even know if I checked out your social media pages yet. Yeah, you know, besides YouTube, I saw YouTube. Yeah, you know, good question. Yeah, I'm so old school. I hardly touch social media, but we do have Facebook, 
YouTube, uh, what else? You can find it all on usasumo.com. Okay. Um, but any questions, you can go there as well. And, you know, if you if you want to, if someone wants to, you know, book guys like Bianba Yamahiroki, you know, for big events, you know, you can reach out to us via usasumo.com. But anybody at all, you know, like I said, check the calendar page, check the classes page to, to come to a practice, and uh, uh, it'd be great. Yeah. Fantastic. Guys, get out. Go try something new. This is an entrance or entry into something brand new, new culture, a new art that you never thought about thinking or doing. doesn't have to be sumo, but there's something out there. You can go try. Go start something new today. So get out there and do it. And thank you so much for tuning into the show. Please make sure if you haven't already subscribed to the show. If you are new to, this, uh, new to the show, welcome to the Bus Driver Experience. And, yeah, that's pretty much it on plugs, guys. Thanks so much again for tuning in. Have a great day. Fitz is the most uh, for those who...